Chelsea, did you find any news you wanted to go over that happened this week? Happened this week? Oh, no. Well, happened at any time. Any recent events? No, I don't think since yesterday. We could talk about Hurricane Ida, I guess. I think the only thing I would really say about it is that it's caused about $70 billion in Louisiana at this point. Oh, it landfalled now. Oh, it landfalled. It's on its way past Louisiana now. It's on a trajectory to go through kind of Tennessee north to New York and then head out into the Atlantic. And what happened in New Orleans? Are they okay? About $70 billion in damages, but no levees broke. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So it's looking like the damage will not be as significant as Katrina this time around, despite the fact it's a more significant event. But nevertheless, those levees are in much need of replacement. And engineering estimates have put the break at 2023 is probably the earliest it'll break. Yike. That's only two years away. The other thing I wanted to talk about was the eviction moratorium that has ended in the U.S. So at the start of COVID, the U.S. took a stance that evictions should not be allowed during this pandemic because it's just going to add too many issues to this already existing pandemic. Yeah, and we're the same, right? We do still have a moratorium. And we have many other rules and we are provincially regulated as opposed to the weird mishmash in the U.S. of who's actually regulating it. Okay. This law was challenged in June and the United States Supreme Court upheld it in a 5-4 decision, which really rested on the shoulders of Brett Kavanaugh, a Trump appointed judge who simply said that he allowed the moratorium to survive because it was only set to go until July 31st, and he did not expect it to get extended. After that, there was a big fight whether or not to actually extend the moratorium. Biden originally said no, and the progressive side of the party pushed him on it, and eventually he caved and did extend it. On August 26th, the United States Supreme Court said that Biden was not allowed to. I don't under Why would they not want to? They're basically just said that Biden didn't have the power to unilaterally do this. I mean, why so, would people be pushing for him not to extend it, though? Um, money to be made? Money to be made and the economy getting back to normal. And landlords hold a lot of sway. Yeah, that's not great. I mean... Yeah. there You saw a lot of sap stories in the press as well about landlords who couldn't meet their... They couldn't pay their bills because their tenants weren't paying them. Yeah. But, I mean, touche. I mean, if you can't pay your bills, then that's don't try to make your living off someone else. Yeah. But that that's what our entire system's set up on. So who's to say where to actually break it? I think the I United say, States even more so. Yeah. And I would say if your entire profession hasn't had to change its name since the medieval times, and you, in fact, are one of the only lords left in the world, maybe that is an outdated mode of making a living. Is it one of the onlys? No, it's just, what else has the term lord in it? Lord. Yeah. Isn't it a title? It's a title. It's a landowner. There, I don't think there's anything else. I mean, you can be a laird in Scotland, but that's the same thing. They just say it funny. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we're going to be seeing a lot of evictions in the coming weeks. There That's was going to be good. Yeah. There was $46 billion uh, 
earmarked by the federal government in the U.S. to be distributed to landlords for backed uh, tenants back on their rent. It was up to the landlord or the tenant to apply for it. And a lot of tenants did, in fact, apply for it. But the landlords have decided not to accept that payment because they would rather just be able to evict the person who's in there and get Why? more rent from the next person. So they can raise the rent. Yeah. Oh, that's disgusting. So of the $46 billion, only about 10% of it's actually been distributed to landlords. That's the thing about capitalism. Nobody cares about humans. They just care about where they can make they're, more money. They're just a, a a variable factor in the inputs. Yeah. That's about it. Yeah, it's such a great system we're both on. Yeah. A few studies were done on the amount of people who are likely at or near eviction when this moratorium's lifted. They estimated somewhere around 7 million people are behind on rent in the U.S. And that somewhere close to 4 million of them believe that an eviction is imminent on their household. That's alarming. Yeah. What if, like, is the homeless population just going to explode? It's looking that way. And if you ever get evicted from a house, it is really hard to find another house. Really? Oh, yeah. It's going to be on your credit score and it's going to be on basically your references for your next oh, house you look for. I had no idea. Oh, yeah. that's going to be bad. So, yeah, that's the place we're at. Something to watch over the coming weeks, months, probably years. And just to get a little bit back on track, I wanted to put this, I find, pertinent to this situation. A quote from a very famous economist, or at least philosophical economist back in the early days. Landlord's right has its origins in robbery. The landlords, like all other men, love to reap where they never sowed and demand a rent for even the natural produce of the earth. And that quote does not, in fact, come from Karl Marx or Mao. That comes from a man by the name of Adam Smith, forefather of free market economies and the invisible hand. Oh, really? Less say fair. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't ask me to guess this time because I didn't yes, remember. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Surprisingly, it was not uh, Ebenezer. <laughs> Something tells me Ebenezer would not have had that view. <laughs> but yes, that would be surprising had he said it. I, I also, I find that I... story very weird, just in the sense that we consider it a Christmas movie. It's just a movie that, sorry, a Christmas story. And it's yeah, really but... just the fact that it happens around Christmas and has no, the it... word Christmas in the name. Yeah, and it's the ghost of Christmas past. Isn't that the ghost? There's three ghosts. Yeah, of Christmas past and present and future. Yeah. Aren't they the Christmas ghosts? Sure. I think sure. they are. <laughs> that, I think Christmas they, ghosts. they don't come from anything like canon to Christmas. No, but they're Christmas ghosts. They're it festive. also always upset me growing up that the um, ghost of Christmas present never had a present with him. <laughs> also, my only reference for that movie is the Muppet Christmas Carol. <laughs> Story, I, I mean. I've seen that one. I've seen the Mickey Mouse one, and I have seen well, the Muppet one. Is the, the most Muppet superior. one is pretty good. Yeah. It's got Michael Caine in it. Yeah, and Fozzie Bear and Gonzo and Gonzo, and it's a musical. So no, it's sorry, it doesn't have Gonzo. It has Gonzo playing Charles Dickens. Yeah, so it's, it's a cast well played. Yes, <laughs> his best role by far, and also has 
interesting underpinnings of anti-capitalist thought. But I like that. Isn't that a thing of the whole story, though? Not just the Muppets? Of A Christmas Carol. Okay, good. Kind of the underpinning of living a life completely <laughs> honed in on business and accruing wealth is not a life worth living. Yeah. That's why I like, like that's it. That's literally the ending. Also, I, I'm glad we clarified because I thought it was the Muppets that were anti capitalism. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if Jim Henson was anti capitalist. Like, he, you know, he liked to smoke weed. Oh, yeah, for sure. He was a hippie. Yeah. And he, he hung around with puppets. Yeah. Something there. Anyhow. Uh, yeah. I think that, we got a long episode. Yeah, we got a long episode, so strap yourselves in. I haven't actually put seat in belt. the seatbelt on this seat yet, so <laughs> I'm going to be freewheeling here tonight. Get ready. Chelsea, can you cue up the music? Yeah, here it comes. From the unexplained to the mundane, come join us on a journey to the fringe. Hello and welcome to Journey to the Fringe, your avenue to the strange, the absurd, the bizarre, and to the drugs, at <laughs> least for the time being. Yeah. Because we know about them. Not where they are, but everything else about them. Most things. Some things. Some things. A lot of things. A lot things. of things. <laughs> if this is your first time hearing us, I would highly recommend that you stop now and look back two episodes from whence you are now to see the hmm. beginning of what is, I believe it's going to be a trilogy of episodes. Yeah. I don't think we're doing anything more for now, but we it's going to give you it again. It's yeah. going to give you the knowledge that you need to be equipped to handle all these fast talking jives and ribbings at each other's expenses and <laughs> just general knowledge on the world. Yeah. So if, if you choose to forego this warning, you might not be able to handle it. But yeah, might lose it, you. If you have chosen to listen to us, thank you. You're back now. Hello. We are going to be continuing on from here. So our first episode was on history of drugs prior to criminalization. Uh, we focused on the, the big three. I wouldn't say I like to call them that because I don't really talk about this in real life. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't come up a lot where I would have to actually have to reference them as the big three. <laughs> But we have focused it on the big three, heroin, <laughs> cocaine, and cannabis. It, very interesting. I've said interesting far too many times. A very alluring history that is full of twists Way and turns and sales and painkillers and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. From there, we went and focused on the beginning of criminalization, the early 1900s to about the 1950s. Chelsea does have a little right. bit of something to add right now to get us going again. Yeah. Like we said, go back, listen to the last one, come back once you've listened to the Marijuana Act, because I have a little something to add from the last episode. And we kind of alluded to this, kind of not, but I just thought it was really important to talk about on this episode, which I think is a really important part of the Marijuana Act. There's so many different depths behind these laws that were being passed and all the history that we're talking about. So of course, we can't include anything. So back to the Marijuana Act, many scholars agree hey, that- Sorry, Chelsea, mm -hmm. just so that we can make sure it's in full, the Marijuana Tax Act. Yeah, Tax Act. I, mi I missed that one word. The Marijuana Tax Act of 1914 had more than one hidden agenda. 
<sighs> I know. I know. Everyone's shocked right now. That being destroying the hemp industry. To start, hemp is 10 times stronger than the fiber in Douglas fir, which is apparently the best soft word lumber between you and I, and also cotton. It is lighter and less expensive to process than wood, and one acre of hemp planted for 40 years has a 400% more usable fiber than one acre of trees through their 40-year life cycle. I did not know that hemp had a 40-year life cycle. Yeah, apparently. That's what's written down here. <laughs> it's written in the notes. It must be here. <laughs> It came from somewhere. It is also the most sustainable out of all of those due to strong carbon storage capability due to the high biomass content and low water level needs for the plant. So it has a higher capacity to store CO2 than trees and it's faster growing than wood. Those are just to name a few things in which it's more sustainable than cutting down forests and old growth trees. Anyhow, back to my point, scholars say that the Marijuana Tax Act was also pushed forth by businessmen akin to Andrew Mellon, Randolph Hart, and the DuPont family. The DuPont family, I just want to note that they sound like the family that are the villains in a Disney movie. They don't They've also good. made several appearances now on this podcast. If you have the time, I would suggest <laughs> pausing it now, going back to our planned obsolescence episode where we talk about them in their dealings with nylon. And if you have even a little more time, I would recommend going back to our recycling episode where we reference them in their fairly disgusting push for the plastic and throwaway culture. Yeah. Okay, I'll be back. We can okay. wait. Okay. <laughs> Now I'm caught up on the episodes. DuPont family, right? Scholars believe that with the invention of the decorticator, decorticator, <laughs> a machine used to essentially strip down and process hemp, that hemp would become an extremely cheap alternative to the pulp and newspaper industry. I also have to add that hemp does take a little bit more labor to process than the other products, but all in all, better product. So in turn, Hearst, the businessman I mentioned, who's a newspaper publisher and politician known for developing the nation's largest newspaper and communication chain at the time, and invented yellow journalism, if you recall, from Taylor and his wonderful example. In the last episode, he felt it was a threat to his timber holdings, of course. He had a large investment in that. So Mellon, the U.S. Secretary of the Treasury and the wealthiest man in America, had invested heavily in the DuPont's new synthetic fiber nylon. There is some foreshadowing there. And would never have been a success if something was not done about hemp. So all in all, these are just very powerful people who had a lot of pull and some invested interests. And I just thought that it was a fairly important part of the hemp narrative as well that should be included in this episode. So I just wanted to touch on that. Anyhow, that was the end. On to bigger and brighter things. Yeah, right? so... And I think this is a good segue point because we were just talking about the Marijuana Tax Act. And Chelsea didn't really mention it, but there's a reason that we pronounce it the Marijuana Tax Act. And that is because it is spelt with an H and not a J. This was exclusively done for the purposes of fear mongering and making people associate cannabis with ethnics. Um, that felt wrong, but that, that's, that's, I think, the best word to describe that. <laughs> Anyhow, it was mentioned in the last 
episode, but not quite like that. So yeah. I mean, it actually kind of was <laughs> like a lot. Okay. Anyhow, so, on to our yeah. war on drugs. The Marijuana Tax Act required you to register with the government and acknowledge that you had marijuana or that you were purchasing marijuana from someone. This law was challenged in 1968 by a fairly prominent psychologist by the name of Timothy Leary. He's well known as a psychologist that practiced at Harvard University. He had quite a few experiments that were very interesting. I keep saying interesting. That uh, deal with <laughs> complex issues that are kind of on fringe topics so he would be an interesting person to talk about in future episodes <laughs> are but, you okay <laughs> yeah i'm good okay good just wondering yeah so i just I've, I've been saying interesting too much i gotta <laughs> you can't have your crutch words you got you gotta shuffle it up <laughs> get the thesaurus sorry I derailed the you of Timothy Leary and what happened here. So in 1968, he challenged the Marijuana Tax Act as unconstitutional as a breach of certain rights of the individual. Here's the story that sets it up. On December 20th of 1965, Leary left New York by automobile, intending to take a vacation trip to the Mexican state of Yucatan. He was accompanied by his daughter and son, both teenagers and two others. On December 22nd, 1965, the party drove across the International Bridge between the United States and Mexico at Laredo, Texas. They stopped at Mexican Customs Station and after apparently being denied entry, drove back across the bridge. They halted at the American Secondary Inspection Area, explained the situation to a customs inspector, and stated that they had nothing for Mexico to declare. The inspector asked to search the car, examined its interior, and saw what appeared to be marijuana seeds on the floor. Small amounts of marijuana were also found on the car floor and in the glove compartment. A personal search of Leary's daughter revealed a silver snuff box containing semi-refined marijuana and three partially smoked marijuana cigarettes. Oh. Though Leary was arrested for violating the Marijuana Tax Act, it was also illegal in the state of Texas to possess marijuana. What this case hinges on is the fact that Timothy Leary believes his rights under the Fifth Amendment were breached and that this law is unconstitutional because it requires you to self-incriminate due to states criminalizing marijuana. So yeah. if you have to declare that you have marijuana and places are saying it's illegal to have marijuana, the Fifth Amendment says you have a right to not self-incriminate. I mean, he's got a point. Yes. That was his argument that went to the Supreme Court. In 1968, a unanimous decision from the Supreme Court actually said that this was an illegal law and it needs to be taken off the books. Nice. Good job. This is also the year of a federal election in the United States fought between one Hubert Humphrey on the Democrat side and one Richard Milhouse Nixon on the Republican side. And just a fun Simpsons fact for you right now. Milhouse is in fact named after Richard Milhouse Nixon because Matt Groening believed the name Milhouse was the most unfortunate name one could be given. Yeah, I got to love a good Mil uh, Milhouse fact. Yes. Uh, Simpsons fact. <laughs> and my ankles are soaked, but my cuffs are <laughs> bone dry. <laughs> Everything's coming up Milhouse. Classic. Also, the, the first like five seasons of The Simpsons, there's at least four references I can think of off the top of my head to Nixon. 
So they uh, they they really like to poke fun at him. I do think it just kind of reveals didn't notice the age that. Yeah, of everybody involved with that show. But yeah, it's just kind of a fun tidbit. Nixon won the White House, and he inherited a very different drug portfolio than what was anticipated coming into office. And over the course of his presidency, he really started up what ends up being deemed the war on drugs. And this term, the war on drugs, gets credited to the start right here under Nixon's administration. Thanks, Nixon. Yeah, what a good guy. Yeah, he and really we are now, started it for us. We are going to show you speech that Nixon gave, often considered the start of the war on drugs. You want to join me here? Won't you be seated, please, ladies and gentlemen? Come on, Dr. Jaffe and Mr. Krogh, Mr. Ehrlich. Fine, fine. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to summarize for you the meeting that I have just had with the bipartisan leaders, which began at 8 o'clock and was completed two hours later. I began the meeting by making this statement, which I think needs to be made to the nation. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. I have asked the Congress to provide the legislative authority and the funds to fuel this kind of an offensive. This will be a worldwide offensive dealing with the problems of sources of supply as well as Americans who may be stationed abroad wherever they are in the world. It will be government-wide pulling together the nine different fragmented areas where, within the government in which this problem is now being handled. And it will be nationwide in terms of a new educational program uh, that we trust will result as, uh, from the discussions that we have had. With regard to this offensive, uh, it is necessary first to have a new organization. And the new organization will be within the White House uh, Dr. Jaffe, who will be one of the briefers here today, will be the man directly responsible. He will report directly to me. And he will have the responsibility to take all of the government agencies, nine, that deal with the problems of rehabilitation, uh, in which his primary responsibilities will be research and education, and see that they work not at cross-purposes, pur but work together in dealing with the problem. If we're going to have a successful offensive, we need more money. Consequently, I'm asking the Congress for $155 million in new funds, which will bring the total amount this year in the budget for drug abuse, both in enforcement and treatment, to over $350 million. As far as the new money is concerned, incidentally, I have made it clear to the leaders that if this is not enough, if more can be used, if Dr. Jaffe, Jaffe after studying this problem, finds that we can use more, more will be provided. In order to defeat this enemy, which is causing such great concern, and correctly so to so many American families, money will be provided to the extent that it is necessary and to the extent that it will be useful. And finally, in order for this program to be effective, it is necessary uh, that it be conducted on a basis in which the American people all join in it. That's why the meeting was bipartisan, 
bipartisan because we needed the support of the Congress, but bipartisan because we needed the leadership of members of the Congress in this field. Fundamentally, it is essential for the American people to be alerted to this danger, to recognize that it is a danger that will not pass with the passing of the war in Vietnam, which has brought to our attention the fact that a number of young Americans have become addicts as they serve abroad, whether in Vietnam or Europe or other places. Because the problem existed before we became involved in Vietnam, it will continue to exist afterwards, and that is why this offensive deals with the problem there in Europe, but will then go on to deal with the problem throughout America. Uh, one final word with regard to presidential responsibility in this respect. I very much hesitate always to bring some new responsibility into the White House because there are so many here, and I believe in delegating those responsibilities to the departments. But I consider this problem so urgent. I also found that it was scattered so much throughout the government with so much conflict, without coordination, that it had to be brought into the White House, and consequently, I have brought Dr. Jaffe into the White House directly reporting to me so that we have not only the responsibility but the authority to see that we wage this offensive effectively and in a coordinated way. Uh, the briefing team will now be ready to answer any questions on the technical details of the program. I also do like how just like kind of nonchalant presidential uh, announcements were. I know, it looks so different. Guys smirking to the side of them. I did just want to say a couple things here. Okay. That guy on the left, I'm going to rewind it just a couple seconds. It looks like he's got speed goggles on. Like they're built for aerodynamics. <laughs> the other guy on his right, sorry, he's his like left, trying to right. hold it in. Yeah, that is George Costanza. It is. <laughs> he looks like so a young good. George Costanza. It is. Oh my god. <laughs> he's trying so, not to laugh or something. Yeah. And you know, it's just like there's an inner George monologue going on there. So sorry, just focus on the guy on the left here. <laughs> As it pans out, those are speed goggles. Oh, they are for like speed walking. They are speed goggles. <laughs> That's how they catch the drugs. <laughs> Can you tell we've watched this more than once? We're focusing on the background characters. Also, we did talk about this the last time, but Chelsea has now watched the skit with tim robinson oh yeah does nixon's hair not slick back real nice yeah it does it was made for being slicked back yeah i am convinced that at least at some point in nixon's life he was a real piece of shit who went out yeah. for sloppy steak uh he probably was at that moment yeah that's what his friends are thinking about <laughs> yeah. dr jaffe's got sloppy steak on the mind <laughs> anyhow <laughs> Serious <laughs> notes. I wonder if either of those guys ever got their own show. Probably not. Yeah, too bad. But one thing I did want to focus on with the end there is Nixon really started to focus in on the idea that Vietnam was an issue that had to be dealt with because that was something going on at this time. It does get looked at thoroughly in Chasing the Scream, which we have talked about before. There was a drug problem, heroin and marijuana use Although marijuana not really being a problematic 
drug was still being used everywhere by the U.S. military stationed in Vietnam. And it was really focused on by the media at the time as well. Uh, Nixon inherited a very strange relationship with the Vietnam War because he thwarted plans to meet peace while Lyndon B. Johnson was office with his good friend, Henry Kissinger, a very prominent war criminal who should live out the rest of his days in jail and should not have been allowed to enjoy the next 50 years of his life. But here we are. Anyhow, back to the place that we are at hand. This is a stance that the Nixon administration took that becomes the beginning of the war on drugs. I know way too much about fun facts about presidents. So if I go out on a tangent on a president, I apologize, especially to those of you that I work with who partake in President's Fridays. You know these facts what? already. If not, these are just refreshers. If you're listening to this outside of office hours, I do apologize for bringing President's Friday into your non-office hours. If you're listening to this at work, how dare you steal time? But thanks for listening. But thanks for listening. Keep up the good work. Go team. Yeah. Anyhow, Nixon cracked down hard and he really formed everything into one administration. And he took this to be his goal for what doesn't seem really straightforward until you start to look at some quotes that came out later on from his administration. This quote came from uh, 1968. The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. Former Nixon domestic policy chief, John Ehrlichman told Harper's writer Dan Baum for the April cover story published Tuesday. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt these communities, Ehrlichman said. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. That is a quote from the reporter. Ehrlichman's children dispute this quote, but not because they know for a fact it was never said. They just believe their father would never speak like that. So in 1970, Nixon passed the Controlled Substances Act, which made marijuana a Schedule One drug, which means it could not be studied or possessed by anyone, which also included the likes of heroin, LSD, and peyote. Interesting choice. Yeah, only one of those drugs actually poses a threat to your health. Yeah. In a very direct way. And even then, heroin is still used in so many painkillers. Yeah. And I mean, heroin's not even the most dangerous of its form. No. It's no, fentanyl. and that's really... Um, please go back if you haven't already re-listened to episode one, where we talk about the difference between an opioid and an opiate. Yeah. I can't remember, but we're going to keep talking about them. <laughs> I hope we Little get it help. Right. <laughs> the term was popular. So the war on drugs, this term was popularized by the media shortly after this press conference that we just listened to by Richard Nixon or Dick, as a lot of people like to call him, because it makes a lot more sense with how he governed. Yeah. Uh, the day after the publication of a special message from President Nixon to the Congress on drug abuse prevention and control, during which he declared drug abuse public enemy number one. That message to Congress included text about devoting more federal resource to the prevention of new addicts and the rehabilitation of those who are addicted. But that did not receive the same public attention as the term war on drugs. Two years prior to this, Nixon had formally declared war on drugs that would be directed towards eradication, interdiction, and incarceration. So he declares war in 1971. At that time, 
100,000 people had been incarcerated for marijuana, some sort of marijuana arrest. By 1972, that number had jumped to 420,700 people in the U.S. That's a little concerning. And that is the start of incarceration of the drug use. And that's marijuana? On a mass scale. That's just marijuana. Yeah. Oh, God. Like, those people should be. That hits the most important parts of the Nixon administration. We touched briefly on the Schaefer Commission. Basically, the Schaefer Commission found that drugs pose, marijuana especially, pose no threat to the public good and should not be criminalized and then was hidden. But with that, we're going to move from old uh, Tricky Dick, head through a scandal through a peanut farmer and on to a celebrity. Peanut farmer. Okay, so that's cue where the crack epidemic comes in. <laughs> if you didn't get it from that introduction. We skip a whole bunch of history here. Obviously, we're just touching on the more important point points of the war on drugs. So the crack epidemic is a fairly huge part of this narrative. So in a nutshell, of course, because that's what we do here. We don't give you the full history. We just give you the important history and then we talk about it. Um, So the crack epidemic in the United States was a surge of crack use in major cities across the U.S. in the early 1980s into the early 1990s. And now I say major cities, which include New York, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, where rural cities, that's a tricky word, were not really affected by this. Um, And that's just by means of who was most hard hit by this drug, which you will soon understand. Don't worry. Now, I don't know much about this and the recession, and I tried to research it for this episode, and I realized it was way over my head. And I will basically leave it at that, but I know that it is pertinent to this portion of what I'm talking about. Do you want a brief history of the 1980s recession? Okay. Yeah. Just let me finish this one thought. So the crack epidemic does start as we're going through a recession and this is where it emerges in. So yeah. Okay, go. So the 1980s recession, you're going to find a few different trains of thoughts on what happened here. The easiest, shortest explanation I can give is the US came out very much so on top of the war, World War II. Having been the only first world country, for the most part, North America was untouched by the war. Whereas everybody else was destroyed. Lucky them. All of the first world was destroyed and had no means of production. The next 20 or so years, the U.S. has an absolute golden era Mm -hmm. of economic expansion due to that fact. At about the 1970s, the start of the 1970s, and you can actually see this, they focus on it a bit in that 70s show, if you ever watched it. Right. Yeah, red really suffers from the recession that's going on in that. And what it's called is stagflation. Basically, the rest of the world had rebuilt its factories, had gotten to the level of capacity that was needed. And the US had invested in these economies as well. Places like Korea, Japan, all of Europe had gotten to the point where they could build on par with the US for cheaper too, because the US has gotten used to being the only ones and being able to set the price. This enters what is considered a time of High unemployment, high inflation, and low economic expansion. So their growth of the economy was always below inflation at this point. So they coined the term stagflation to explain what happened here. Okay, that's uh, really This is great. also, just really quickly, because there are two other factors I'd like to talk about. This is also 
uh, Nixon coming, not Nixon, uh, Reagan coming into power is mm -hmm. also when OPEC decides to form. It is the Middle Eastern oil producers who decided to um, wield their power as one so that they could dictate the price and the flow of oil. So you're seeing gas shortages all over the U.S. and the world. And basically overnight gasoline tripled in price. And um, also you saw here is where Iran kind of does its whole thing where they try to overthrow their government and they cut off easy flowing oil from there. So oil is a big part of this and that's really just the nail in the coffin for this. This is also a change in economic philosophy from uh, Keynesian economic theory, which is spend a lot of money in a recession to get the economy stimulated. And rightfully so, then during a prosperous time, tax the economy so that it doesn't get out of hand and the recession doesn't get too bad. Hmm. Interesting. And we move from here to what's called nowadays trickle-down economics or Reaganomics. Surprisingly, we're going to be talking about one of those people. Mm. Uh, more commonly or originally classically called uh, horse and sparrow economics. Trickle-down economics is the idea that if we cut all of the taxes and regulations on the wealthy people, the money will just flow down as they are job creators to the job users, the workers. Is that um, where it comes down. from? Yeah, it trickles down. But it actually comes from the term horse and sparrow economics, which is if you give the horse more oats, it will shit out more oats for the sparrows to eat. That's nice. Which I think more fully encapsulates what's happening here. It also is associated with the term Thatcherism in the UK and Mulroneyism in Canada. Mulroney. There are a few more, but basically the 1980s was completely about moving public sector to private sector. Okay. Continue. <laughs> so Reagan, this is where Reagan comes into presidency. And so with this um, recession going on, he cuts half a million people from welfare, um, one million people from food stamps, and eliminates 2.6 million children from lunch programs, therefore increasing the extreme poverty in America for those who are going through poverty. Um, now, I'm saying all of this, I've not lived that, and it's not a part of my life experience, and we've both been very blessed. And so this next part, yeah, is just not something that I, I'm very grateful for not having gone through it, but it's very important to know. So black families were forced into low-income neighborhoods because of the color of their skin, and this was due to racial segregation and discriminatory practices by real estate agents concentrating African-American families into low-income inner-city neighborhoods. Well, so, yeah, and mm -hmm. it, it's not just uh, realtors, it is banks as well, refusing to give mortgages for specific areas to black families as well. Not only is your house worth less just because you live around other black people, but even if you could get a mortgage to move, the bank wouldn't give it to you because, again, they don't want the, the likes of you in their neighborhood. Just prime example of systemic racism that has plagued the U.S. for a long time. 
yeah, it's just coming at it from all areas. Not only this, but you get into a recession where there's less jobs to go around. And so you get the kids in these families growing up in a culture where they were purchasing food, their families are purchasing food using food stamps, all of a sudden those are gone. They're not getting meals at school when they're already hard done by at home. And all of a sudden, like everything's taken away that they had very little of to begin with. So these kids, when they're home by themselves and their parents are out trying to find jobs and make ends meet, they would, you know, hang around and they go to the local corner store and steal food because it was a matter of survival at that point. Between 1982 and 1984, cocaine imported into the U.S. increases by 50%, which is more, I'm putting quotations around it, than any time in U.S. history, I guess because it was quite readily available prior to it being criminalized. You know, like in our last episode when we were talking about, you know, heroin being in kids' cough medicine, you could buy, like, cocaine with syringes and stuff in catalogs. Or, you know, it was just in your Coca-Cola. Yeah, like, I, I don't know what makes it this much more available, but it's there and it's more readily available. Actually, we may know the answer later on in the episode. So anyhow, 63 tons of cocaine floods the market, which greatly decreases the cost of cocaine. And for your consideration, I would like to point out that Cuban cigars could not make it into the US at this point, yet 63 tons of cocaine was no problem to do. Well, yeah, all that all that cocaine can do is kill you of an overdose. Yeah. Cuban cigars can plague your mind with communism. Yeah, exactly. Which is worse. Yes. Yeah. At this time, cocaine was seen as a rich people's drug, person's drug. But crack came along in 1985, and it's cheaper because there's a surplus. So now it wasn't just a rich people drug. It was hitting the poverty-stricken areas. So drug dealers, you ask why? So drug dealers start to convert cocaine into crack to sell smaller quantities of to more people. So it would convert to about $6 today for one dose versus $100 per gram for cocaine so essentially crack is and don't like hold me to specifics here but crack is essentially like the solid version of cocaine so you smoke it instead of like sniff it i guess so you get this generation of kids growing up that are so poor and just with this new drug that's newly introduced it just creates this perfect storm and these kids come into the picture looking to capitalize and it's just kind of this gold rush that hits the inner city neighborhoods and it was everywhere everybody was doing it it was like so fun and all these kids are selling it some communities that were 99 percent black and all of a sudden these kids so hurt hit by poverty are able to take care of their families and buy themselves anything that they could dream of. At this time, crack really is the answer to all of this community's problems that are so, you know, suffering from this recession and all the new restrictions that Reagan has imposed on them. So now you get these younger people capitalizing on crack, which is so interesting because 
the U.S. economy is basically just like making money out of literally anything that you can make money out of and just exploiting the shit out of it and allowing these poor kids to move up the economic ladder away from the poverty that they hated. And they would sell crack to whoever would take it, literally anyone who would take it. And the cops are there, but they want nothing to do with any inner city neighborhoods. They're made up of mostly back black people and minorities. They're basically there just to, to get done their shift and they're turning a blind eye to everything that's going on. Everybody is traveling into these inner city neighborhoods to get it as it was an urban drug. That was the place to go to get this. <laughs> and That's what you do on your family's city trip. Exactly. You ditch them and go to... Uh, get a little crack. Yeah. So because it's concentrated in inner city areas where the drug dealers are looking to make money and obviously they're selling it to their neighborhoods. And with these kids making so much money, which would be anywhere from two to three thousand a day up to two hundred to three hundred thousand a day. So they are two hundred to three hundred thousand a day. Yeah. There's some of them saying that they saw a million dollars pass through their hands a day. Wow. Yeah. Like six bucks a hit. Yeah. It's never just one hit, though. Yeah. Is the thing. I mean, if you can only afford one hit, it's probably only one hit. Yeah. <laughs> but then, you know, if you got to buy six bucks, you take the bottles in or something. <laughs> now, with these kids living this lifestyle and they have all this money and obviously it's, you know, not a safe thing to be doing. They now have more access to buy guns. And of course, in turn, the death rates spike all of a sudden. And it was pretty bad. So especially when you're giving these kids this amount of money and guns and responsibility over turf. Drug dealers were dying. The youth death rate skyrocketed. And I believe, I wish I would have wrote it down. I think it's still suffering for young black males. Oh, yeah, especially in still higher than average. Yeah. Um, Small kids were dying in the crossfire of drug dealers shooting each other. It was really bad. And I found this quote that just sums everything up nicely until this point. Um, Quotation, it became popular in cities that were in a state of social and economic chaos as a result of the low skill level and minimal initial resource outlay required to sell crack. Systematic violence flourished as a growing army of youth, enthusiastic inner city crack sellers attempted to defend their economic investment, which caused further disintegration of these neighborhoods. Essentially, this is becoming to the point where in these neighborhoods, people who aren't involved with crack are afraid to leave their houses. And so they do demand a higher police presence increase in these neighborhoods. And I mean, it really doesn't help anything. I already said that they're turning a blind eye in the first place. And the drug dealers, they just start paying off the cops. And not only are they being paid off, they're also selling crack and stealing crack and money from the drug dealers. So there is actually a whole scandal with the cops being um, taken to court, I believe, about it. It's actually pretty interesting, but that's all I'm going to touch up here. Crack ends up devastating the entire community and culture even more than it already had been devastated. It kind of like picked up for a second at the beginning of crack, and then it just like went straight down further than it was before with the poverty. The neighborhoods become garbage dumps. 
And it had devastating effects on the people in these communities with all the deaths and what was once, like I said, fun crack use. Now it turns into serious addictions, separating families and black communities were saturated in most of this. Death rates were high. The amount in children in foster care skyrockets. Basically, here, crack was a scapegoat to blame for what society had produced and didn't want to deal with. Well, especially addiction is really just a symptom of many other things being wrong in life. Exactly. And And it's not really... There has been economic problems that people have just been avoiding by getting high. Yeah. That's what happened here and it the mental health a form of addiction is just a relatively new thing and it's not even addressed really in any of the legislation that is in any of this still no and it's because and most of these are, are still around and that's because we really still are stuck with ronald reagan's view of the world and really that it is it's your own fault if you don't succeed so it's yeah, really which is what because, the US because, the yeah. whole system of the US is based on and that's yeah. what their privatized healthcare and everything like that. Well, and, and sometimes and it doesn't really, even give people Oh, a you're chance. addicted to crack? Well, that's your own fault. And really, especially like with the homeless population, it's it's expanding right now because we're living in terrible economic times. I know I personally, if I were living on the streets, would not want to be sober for that experience. No. No, and well, I think literally we talked the only about this yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, and I think you have to have some empathy for homeless people, especially when people say, oh, they're going to just go get higher. They're just going to use it to go get drunk. And like, what would you expect them to do with that? Yeah. What would you like them to do? Start a garden? You give them the change out of your pocket. Like, if it's going to, you know, keep them warm for the night or if it makes it a little more bearable for them. I mean, and they already have to feel judge by groveling to everybody else for money. I think that's, really an important part of this also to touch on. So eventually after some high profile athletes die from crack overdoses, crack becomes so stigmatized against not just the black community, but especially black mothers. And it does get pretty bad in the media and the information that they were passing off as scientific evidence was not scientific evidence at all. For example, was the explosive use of crack babies in the media, which didn't even come close to what they were making it out of in the media. I think they did a sample of about 15 babies, and that was it. Nobody ever looked at it past then. It was just greatly over-exaggerated, and it was just like political climate at the time. Oh, yeah, it's really just vilifying everything about the drug. And this whole situation here. Yeah. So it just really fueled massive mit- misconceptions in which no help or sympathy was ever offered for an addict by means of mental health. And it just really made these people, especially women, they really focused on women who would sell their kids' toys and all these kids going into foster care. And to lose a mother at that time is really losing an important part with all these women who are addicted to crack and that's all they would care about. So they're losing a huge part of their community. But at the same time, they're really vilifying them and making them just what were they calling them like crack whores or something like that, where that's all they were and wasn't giving them anything more to them than that for why or anything like that. So it was really bad. And I'm just going to put a pin in this thought because it's going to converge in my next topic. We move into a, what did you call it? I called it a nice segue, but maybe it's just like a fine segue. You used a fancy word yesterday. (laughs) 
I thought I was creative in my segue. I'm going to tie the crack epidemic in with Reagan. It was already kind of tied in because of what he did to cause this kind of poverty in the inner city neighborhoods. Specifically, I mean, if you're taking away food stamps and like everything like that, you're going to target certain areas. So at this time, many sources of drug dealers cocaine was coming from Nicaragua. Central America had some really bad civil wars going on in Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, and Nicaragua. Yeah, pretty much all of them US led. So the US and all of its infinite wisdom supported a dictatorship in Nicaragua, which was overthrown in 1979, which is aka the Sandinista movement, not even aka, just that's what it was called. And it was led by a band of leftists and Marxists and had the support of Russia and Cuba, which was no bueno. And was it actually a band of leftists and Marxists? Because that's probably what they would have framed it in the light as because they didn't want them in charge. There was a wave of at least Marxist leaders throughout South America at this time, Ecuador being one of them, Nicaragua as well. I don't know enough about their political leanings on whether or not they actually wanted to nationalize and socialize the industries. Fair enough. I do know they adhered to Marxist theory though. Okay. So Reagan was not having any of this. Of course, because he's in charge of the world. And so, Mark's bad. Mark's bad. <laughs> they start funding and working with gorillas. And these gorillas are not to be confused with the gorillas, which like bananas. These are different gorillas. And these gorillas. <laughs> <laughs> just just so you know that Nicaragua was a banana republic. So. Oh, they, they had bananas. <gasps> yeah, the they were part of the banana republic. Side by side with the gorillas. Okay, I just need to lighten it up here for a second. Have you seen that video of that orangutan that the guy's sunglasses? sunglasses? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Sorry. Once this is all done, I do need to show you actually a video of a gorilla that was taught sign language. And, and he was telling... telling the people not to throw food. Yeah, into don't give me food because I can't eat it. <laughs> I did see that one. They are just beautiful creatures. I really like the guy with sunglasses and the guy telling them no. I really like it when animals can express themselves. I just like what they have. They need to because somebody somebody's got to talk for them. Yeah, exactly. We should. They should all. Orangutan is fabulous. I know, and he looks so nice, and then he's just fed up with them, and eventually just hurls them. Yeah, you know what? We might just use for this episode in advertising, we might use the orangutan in glasses. because it Well, is that just would so be a nice one. He's yeah. not copyrighted, do you think? Don't think so. Okay, that was a nice little portion there because he's my favorite. So these gorillas, the people, not the animal, um, would be, they're known as the Contras, a.k.a. if you're Reagan, you call them the Freedom Fighters. Congress- also Ron DeSantis still. The uh, current governor of Florida has decided to include the Sandinistas as one of the evils of communism and the Contras as freedom fighters. Oh. Like in 2021. Wow. So really? I just don't know after the story. So it's, I mean, it was illegal. So Congress does not want to support the civil war in another country. Well, at least this one for some reason. Uh, Well, the Contras took to war crimes to meet their goals. Like they put ocean mines, like mines, landmines, but in the ocean, in commercial harbors 
to stop any sort of trade oh my gosh. so that people would be pissed off at the government and be scared. And that is a significant war crime. Like, yeah, and that was the Contras? That was the Contras. And they full out said, like, this was fantastic for us. This is great. We would do it again. They were not good. Yeah, and then the U.S. was funding them. So, so that's part of the reason that uh, Congress at some point said, like, you know yes, what? Maybe sense. we shouldn't be giving money to the Contras. Yeah, so in they come, like Taylor just said. Eventually, they do get the funding taken away from the federal government and is gone. And they, being the U.S. government, looks for other options for their source of income to support the Contras, which becomes illegal profits from the sales of arms to Iran illegally. Yeah, because um, they were very good allies at the time, and they yeah. always remain good allies, so... Yeah, That's so it amounted to between 15 to $30 million going from the illegal sale of drugs going to the illegal Contra war. And so the U.S. worked with pilots who flew materials to the Contras, and they would collaborate with individuals there to partake in cocaine smuggling by the Contras. So essentially, they would take supplies there, they would load the cocaine back up into the plane, and you heard that right, the U.S. government was secretly providing guns to a rebel group in Central America, financed by further illegal sales of ammunition to Iran and smuggling the cocaine back into the U.S. on the same planes bringing in the supplies on the same war that they're declaring on drugs that they're bringing into the U.S. for their people to become yeah. addicted to. But, but that's Reagan wasn't problem. doing it. Reagan wasn't yeah. doing it. He wasn't on the plane flying it. Yeah. Therefore, he, he had just... no association whatsoever. Yeah ridiculous this is how the youth essentially where i talked about this massive influx of cocaine into the country this is most likely where it was coming from you're never gonna find um, that officially though if you want a nice fun quick explanation of what is called iran contra american dad did a musical that's about two minutes long that very nicely sums it up so please go on youtube and search american dad iran contra and it'll be the first thing that comes up it's true i watched it last night when we were practicing for this episode <laughs> Very informative. Anyhow, the U.S. is bringing these into these people, and then they're about to be strictly persecuted by drug laws when they're clearly the victims of this. Like Taylor said, you can watch the Family Guy musical, or if you want further reading on this, there was an expose done by journalist Gary Webb, published called The Dark Alliance in 1996 in the San Jose Mercury News. He was also, he either committed suicide or was really? suicided. I can't quite remember. Yeah, Gary Webb's a very famous conspiracy theory name. Oh, I did not know. Because he uncovered this before it all happened and he committed suicide. Oh, that's probably a pretty dangerous thing to have uncovered. Yeah. Yeah, because that's some pretty heavy stuff. That's why we needed to mix in the uh, sunglass orangutan. Yeah, he did die of suicide in 2004. I wonder if it actually was. Yeah. So on to Reagan, more Reagan. Um, in response to this crack epidemic, Reagan declares a more aggressive approach on the war on drugs in regards to policies officially declaring his war in 1982. It's official, ladies and gentlemen. He said that, quotations, drugs were menacing to our society as we are bringing them in. Just kidding. That's not part of the quote. 
It's just implied. And promised to fight for drug-free schools and workplaces. He expanded drug treatment. He expanded stronger law enforcement and drug interdiction efforts, just like our friend Dick and greater public awareness. And by public awareness, they meant some very wrong things, which I'm going to get into. And I'm, I'd be curious to know how he expanded drug treatment, but I did not. So I'm not going to even question myself here. Reagan publicly announces his war on drugs in 1982. And while we've heard this before from our friend Dick, Reagan wanted more aggressive policies than our friend Dick. In 1985, Reagan is up for re-election and there is a massive call for tougher restrictions on crack because of the huge storm of media and misinformation. And as well, the communities don't know what else to do to get the crack out of their neighborhoods, especially the communities where they're living on the same streets where all of this is happening. It's becoming unlivable and they don't, I guess, know what else to do. Not I guess. I mean, I wouldn't know what to do. There comes from Congress. That's the word. I couldn't think of it in our practice (laughs) yesterday. Congress. It took me a day. Congress calls for a comprehensive anti-drug bill and people are calling for drug dealers to go to prison for life. They're so sick of what is going on. Given an election coming up, this is so great for politicians to have under their belt and they're going to be real political about it and make a lot of promises and do stupid things. In turn, they need to have the public on their side, which they have a minority on their side right now, which creates a massive media frenzy with not so scientific information. This also loops back to remember where I put a pin in it. These couple major athletes overdose on crack. So it kind of ties in perfectly at this time. Robert Strutman, head of the NYC DAA office, is quoted saying, in order to convince Washington, I needed to make drugs a national issue issue. And I began lobbying efforts and I used the media. The media was only too willing to cooperate. In 1986, media outlets start pushing stories saying crack is the biggest story since the Vietnam War and the Watergate scandal. Hello, Dick. (laughs) Controversial, that guy. Articles with captions saying crack babies or welfare queen or gang bangers. There's millions, not millions of them, but there's a lot of them that were saturating the media and some of which Reagan were Reagan's favorite slogans to throw around during his election and around his war on drugs. Reagan passes the anti-drug abuse bill for drug enforcement budgeted at $1.7 billion in 1986 monies, which took all of four weeks, which is a process that should have taken upwards of two plus years. It should have taken a long time so that people had a chance to review it and make sure it was getting done what it set out to get done. If you're curious to know what $1.7 billion looks like in today's monies, it is roughly $4 billion to fund the war on drugs and a mandatory minimum for drug offenses. Thanks, Reagan. Thanks, Dick. Thanks, everybody we've mentioned. He begins to shift the job of enforcement from state to federal level and increases budget for anti-drug programs in the FBI, DEA, and the Department of Defense. He also authorizes the use of military in narcotic control efforts and the death penalty for some drug-related crimes and the admission of illegally obtained evidence in drug trials, the harshest penalties of any other drug legislation ever passed. Like, who, like, why? The admission of illegally obtained evidence? 
yeah, in drug trials. That's super fucked because the yeah. whole idea of it being illegal is the whole fact that there's only so much that police should be able to do. So they could have been setting people. up people. Not necessarily. It would more so be an illegal search. That doesn't mean that something couldn't have been planted there if it's illegally obtained. There's not really no, no, and definitely that does happen as well. But what they mean by illegal evidence is more so that it came from things that the police were not supposed to do, but not necessarily intentionally done, yeah. like not reading Miranda rights, failing to get a warrant for inspections. What else? Not having probable cause when pulling somebody over, things yeah. like that. I mean, when it's illegally obtained, there's no real line to draw what's right and what's not yeah. right. This law was specifically targeted to drug traffickers. And so just for an example, to give you guys kind of the unfairness in which this was set up because of how quickly it was passed. 100 grams of cocaine would get you a certain sentence, whereas one gram of crack would get you the exact same sentence that 100 grams of cocaine would get you. So one gram is the equivalent to, let's say, well, a pack of sugar at a restaurant. Five grams of crack would get you a maximum of 40 years in prison. That's a maximum. It's usually around 10 to 20 years, though. The same as 500 grams of cocaine. So obviously there's a huge discrepancy between the two. Might I add at this time, there is no mental health resources offered and addiction was looked at completely differently. With this, they were specifically targeting certain communities with just where crack was concentrated and with cocaine being a white collar drug. By doing such a large discrepancy between the two, they were specifically targeting these inner city neighborhoods. Obviously, as we have seen with every single thing to do with drug criminalization, it has been criticized to say it politely for promoting racial disparities in prison population. Critics also charged that the policies did little to reduce the availability of drugs on the street while resulting in tremendous financial burden for America. And it was also widely criticized as discriminatory against minorities who were more likely to use crack, as I just said, as it was cheaper and 88% of the imprisonment from crack cocaine was African-American because of the fact that I touched on earlier that this is where it dominated the communities. I can't add much more in here except for like, yeah, I agree with that. What I just said, I guess I agree with my own opinion and result of reading this. In 1988, they extend the Anti-Drug Abuse Act to associate a mandatory minimum penalty with the possession of only small amounts of drugs, specifically targeting drug abusers, so throw them in jail instead of address the problem, specifically crack, again in this case. Also, it was a small amount of crack, which carried a huge minimum penalty. And like, I read this and I just shake my head and I wonder, how did no one see what was happening? This is all just like people not seeing a bigger picture. They're not seeing humans for humans. They're not seeing the actual problem. Just like I'm sure Reagan didn't see his trickle down effect of cutting people off food stamps and cutting lunch programs and stuff like that. This is clearly the worst way that they could have possibly fixed this problem. And to call it a war, I even think speaks volumes for where we have come as a society today and the problems that we see around addiction. So anyhow, to continue with the 
evil, I mean regular presidential political things. Defenders say that Reagan did it. This was awesome. Good job, Reagan. He reduced the availability of drugs on the street, and he also reduced the drug rate in adolescence. Thank you. Maybe that was Nancy Reagan. I don't know. Uh, It's also spurious, to say the least, those claims. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they are supporters of Reagan, obviously, saying that. And marijuana use purportedly declined from 33 to 12% between 1980 and 1991. Yay. I'm just about done. Here's Nancy Reagan. She also makes the war on drugs her main priority for some reason. She founds the Just Say No drug awareness campaign in which I guess they thought it would help if kids knew a million different ways to say no. So she traveled around doing that thing for a while. Yeah, it turns out. We, nobody has ever taught their kids to say no to things they don't want to do. And that was the only thing stopping kids from doing drugs. Yeah. Who knew? Yeah. Who knew? That's all she had to do. And she completely solved the drug problem for America. End of episode. Is what she yeah. did. Nancy <laughs> and Reagan we're done right here. There. She came along and fixed it. Obviously, it was criticized for being very simplistic and did not address any social issues associated with drug use, including unemployment, poverty, and family disillusion. That's not true. She did solve the socioeconomic issue of the poors not teaching their children to say no to drugs. Yeah. So I mean, take that, that's Chelsea's their, research. That's their bad, really. I mean, that's the, the minority's problem. Yeah. (laughs) You look at this in relation to what I was talking about with the crack epidemic, and it was completely political. Plus, she needed something to do with her time, I guess. So why not this? It was a very hot topic around this time. Kids shouldn't be in a situation in which they would just need to say no to drugs. I mean, if you look at what I talked about with the crack epidemic and these kids that had their lunch programs taken away and their food stamps taken away, and I'm sure learning a million different ways to just say no would have made absolutely zero difference to their decision to sell crack and make money when somebody's, you know, started making two, $3,000 a day all the way up to $300,000 a day. I'm sure no would have made no difference in that. Nancy Reagan. And that's kind of the end of my little segment here. I hope we all learned something about orangutans. Yeah. And how just majestic of creatures they are. So yeah. like us. Yeah. Anyhow, I, I'm just going to touch a bit. They look from fantastic Nancy in sunglasses. Yeah, they do. <laughs> Damn it. Okay. <laughs> Anyhow, from Nancy, Nancy Reagan? Reagan comes okay. this whole idea of just say no, which spawns the development of DARE, the Drug Abuse Resistance Education Program, which started in the 1980s from the LAPD going from school to school in LA. It turns out this way of teaching kids to just say no is one of, if not the worst ways to teach kids to deal with the pressure of drugs. And especially telling them that everybody's going to be offering you drugs. Yeah. And I know that was always a funny thing when I was in high school. It was like, I thought way more people would be offering me drugs. Plus, they did their part in teaching me a whole lot of stuff about drugs when I was in elementary school. And it just kind of made me curious. And just those weird like commercials, like, this is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. And it's an egg. Yeah. How was that actually supposed to tell you the problem? It actually still tells me as an adult, nothing really. 
and <laughs> I'm still not really sure what it means. And anyhow, in the mid to late 1980s, you see a significant uptick in drug use in high school students, particularly of marijuana, because they are curious why they were supposed to say no to this thing that everybody was doing. Yeah. And lacked any other skills for avoiding using drugs. It was just say no, and that was it. Once you said no once, then what? Yep. <laughs> And it's actually funny because D.A.R.E. spawned from a program called SMART. And the research on SMART actually came out and said this is actually a terrible program that is actually putting more kids towards drugs. What? And they continued? Yeah. They yeah, changed and, the name and of it. And then they said, oh, you know what? We're just going to keep doing this because it feels right. Yeah, they changed the name of it. And there are still quotes from politicians saying, like, I know the research doesn't agree with it, but I feel like D.A.R.E. was doing the right thing. I mean, I get it. Because, uh, and I'm I'm not going to sympathize with them because, you know, no, with knowledge is power, right? You want yeah. them to like have their knowledge, but they just presented it in a way that was not giving anybody power. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, it's the whole idea that, yes, things can logically make sense. That doesn't actually mean that the it's real. It's going to play out well. Yes. Yeah. There's just around the stuff. I feel like there's just not a whole lot of thought. They're just like, yeah, that's right. This feels right. We're going to do it with no thought. Into yeah, how I it's always like there was a there was a pencil that came with like the dare program and it said, don't do drugs on it. And as you sharpened it, it would get to a point where it just said, do drugs. <laughs> and I feel that really exemplifies the entire D.A.R.E. program. It does. You're right. That was a great example. <laughs> so that's just to add a little bit on to Nancy Reagan, because she is kind of thought of to be like that, associated with it because of that Just Say No program. From here, we're going to move into the 1990s. And this is a very interesting, this is a integral time for the Democratic Party because they had lost to Reagan monumentally. Jimmy Carter, peanut man, had lost his incumbent presidency to Ronald Reagan in 1984. Sorry, in 1980. And in 1984, Walter Mondale lost all but one state to Ronald Reagan. And everybody thought Ronald Reagan was so cool and so popular, and they wanted to be like, how can we be so cool and so popular like Ronald Reagan? Apparently you can't. And this brings waves to the new Democrats, as they call them, which is uh, started by Bill Clinton, really, as the president. They took a look at what happened during the Reagan administration, and they said they did some surveys. So to diagnose the precise cause behind the Democrats' catastrophic loss of every state in the Union to Ronald Reagan in 1984, with the exception of Walter Mondale's home state of Minnesota, the DNC sponsored several research surveys including one that had been estimated at the time to be the most expensive study commissioned in its history. The chair, Paul Kirk, paid survey researchers Milton Kotler and Nelson Rosenbaum a quarter of a million dollars to conduct a survey of 5,000 voters. In focus groups, whites from the South and Northern ethnic enclaves described the Democratic Party as the quote-unquote giveaway party giving white tax money to blacks and poor people. Another DNC commission study by Stanley Greenberg, who subsequently became a pollster for Clinton's in 1992, cited data from Macomb County, a suburb of Detroit, to make his point even more explicit. These white Democratic defectors express a profound distaste for blacks, a sentiment that pervades almost everything they think about government and politics. Blacks constitute the explanation for their white defectors' vulnerability and or almost everything that has gone wrong in their lives. Not being black is what constitutes being middle class. Not being black is what 
makes a neighborhood a decent place to live. Um. Add to that the 1992 Los Angeles riots, the largest civil disturbance in U.S. history to that point, in which demonstrators took to the streets for six straight days to protest the acquittal of the officers involved in the Rodney King beating. This was a different era for the Democrats, to say the least. And uh, it should come as no surprise then from this that the total number of state and federal inmates grew under Bill Clinton more rapidly than any other presidency, including Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, and George Herbert Walker Bush. Mm. So after the LA riots, Clinton passed the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act. At its core was a federal three strikes bill that established a $30.2 billion crime trust fund to allocate monies to state and municipal police and prison expansion. So why is this coming out of the... Is it just as a result of the riots? I mean, the riots well, because it's of... twofold. It's one, that the riots occurred, and two, that the Democrats perceived their issue with the voting class to be that they weren't tough enough on crime, or specifically that they weren't tough enough on the minority groups. Like, that is... That's mind-blowing. Yeah. That this is what came out of those riots. I so, have no words for that. Yeah. And from that, that crime bill got 100,000 new police on the streets. I expanded death penalty eligible crimes, lifetime imprisonment for people who committed a third violent felony, gang enhancements in sentencing for federal defendants. And even this law allowed children as young as 13 to be prosecuted as adults in special cases. And yeah, that's crazy. I can't yeah. believe that that was a result of that. It just it really is. Even make it, sense. Yeah. It's really, they thought they were losing because of this and they needed to do this. I do think they took the wrong lessons from that. It's but. like there's a there's such a disconnect with what's happening versus the decisions that these people in charge are making. It's just yeah. something that I've seen. The, and like, what say well, does anybody have over groups. it? That's Nothing. The focus groups. The focus groups always obfuscate what the actual issue is or at least allow the person who's conducting the focus group to root in on what they actually think the problem is. <sighs> It's stupid. It's like you put these people in charge and they have such a disconnect and then they're not actually representing like people. Yeah. So through all of this, through Reagan, through who we skipped over, George Bush Sr. In the 80s and 90s, incarceration became de facto urban policy for impoverished communities of color in America's cities. Legislation was passed to impose mandatory minimums, deny public housing to entire families if any member was even suspected of a drug crime, expand federal death penalties, eligible crimes, and impose draconian restrictions on parole. Ultimately, multiple generations of America's most vulnerable populations, including drug users, African-Americans, Latinos, and the very poor, found themselves confined to long-term prison sentences and lifelong social and economic marginality. The carceral effects of the new Democrats' competition with the Republicans vastly increased the ranks of the incarcerated. During this term, the inmate population grew from roughly 1.3 million to 2 million people, and the number of executions sat at 98 people for 1999. That's it. Just like it's like they're just trying to outdo the last guy. Yeah. Significantly, the Democratic president even refused to support the Congressional Black Caucus's proposed Racial Justice Act, which would have prevented discriminatory applications of the death penalty. Oh my God. So that's really Clinton's the last one I believe that really expands the drug war. 
it definitely follows on for a long time, but this is really just like, this would just be what I would consider modern drug history. Like, no, and we no, still have a lot of these laws in place on us. Yeah. And look at the way in which they were put into place and why exactly. they were put into place. They were put into place with no thought. And I have a lot that I want to say, but I that in a nutshell, uh, they're put into place I, with no thought. Yeah. And I do have one more thing to say, just because I want to say like, to show like we're still in this situation. The current president of the United States is Joe Biden. This is Joe Biden's history with everything that's gone on that we've talked about. In 1984, the Comprehensive Control Act was passed and it was spearheaded by Biden and Senator Strom Thurmond and it expanded drug trafficking penalties and federal civil asset forfeiture, which is a whole issue in itself, which allows police to seize and absorb someone's property, whether cash cars, guns or something else, without proving the person is guilty of a crime. Under the federal equitable sharing program, local and state police get up to 80% of the value of what they seized as funds for their department. <laughs> in 1986, Biden was a part of the Anti-Drug Abuse Act. It was sponsored and partly written by Joe Biden, ratcheted up penalties for drug crimes, also created a big sentencing disparity between crack and powdered cocaine. Even though both drugs are pharmacologically similar, the law made it so someone who need to possess 100 times the amount of powdered cocaine to be eligible to for the same mandatory minimum sentence for crack. Yeah. Since crack is more commonly used by black Americans, this sentencing was disparityed. Yep. In 1988, the Anti-Drug Abuse Act, this law, which was co-sponsored by Joe Biden, strengthened prison sentences for drug possession, enhanced penalties for transporting drugs, and established the Office of National Drug Control Policy, which coordinates and leads federal anti-drug efforts. So it's pretty much just been every law that we just talked about yeah. because he's ancient. In 1994, the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, partly written by Biden and signed by President Clinton, imposed tougher wow. sentences and increased funding for prisons, fostering the explosive growth of the U.S. prison population. And in That's 2003, so this millennia he helped with the rave act which built on the anti-drug abuse act of 1986 to impose civil penalties on businesses that knowingly lease rent use or profit from a space where illicit drugs are stored manufactured distributed or used and the idea was to go after raves which drugs are widely used at that's his background when it comes to drugs that's pretty crazy and plus and he's been around since enough, like 1900 yeah, and surprisingly enough, he has not changed at all how they deal with marijuana at the federal level. Was he involved in the Marijuana Act? He might have been. Probably was. Yes. No, was that's pretty... <laughs> yeah, most of these laws that were in place are still in effect to this day. And you look at everything coming up with systematic racism and everything like that. And I think that it's far time that we take a look at these laws and why they were brought into place, how they are brought into place and what purpose they're serving this society. Yeah, but that's all I have, Chelsea. I believe you have some closing thoughts. Yeah, I mean, that was part of it, what I just said. And it's... Just thinking, researching this and finding out it's like true. And I say true loosely because as we have said in previous episodes, we have touched on small portions in which there's a lot to unpack and we're not fully giving you the full story. And there's so much more that you can look into. We're taking what we feel is important and we're also entertaining you because we're very good at that. This is small. And whilst, however small this is, there's still a large amount that I wasn't aware of. And it's as always with most of our episodes and this 
too, I find it so shocking and disgusting. And I don't even think I have enough words in my vocabulary, as always, to address what I have felt sifting through all of this information. And it's been, you know, like I just said, these powerful white men not talking out of their asses, they're just making political buzzwords to get elected. And they're making decisions based on what they think needs to be done to get rid of the problem. And they're just perpetuating a problem and making it worse when they're trying to give it a quick fix. And they're doing nothing except trying to polarize the population with buzzwords like war on drugs and turning people away from each other and spread fear for their own gain. Well, I think an easier way to even say that is they just want a simple answer. Everybody likes a simple answer. Yeah, and but there's nothing the about what they were wrong. trying to do that was simple. Like, no, and that's the whole thing. Was... Even if the simple answer is wrong or inept, people still prefer a simple answer. They would prefer convenient lies to uncomfortable truths. And you look at how sick our society is today. Yeah. And like, I can't help but think, I mean, it, this is a major reason that it is so sick. And everything happening now, I just hope that it's not something that's spread under the rug. And I think there's enough awareness about things that it's not going to be. And hopefully there will be some actual legitimate change, especially when it comes to these laws that are based on systematic racism, like most of the drug epidemic and drug criminalization history is so based in racism. It's crazy. I didn't know the extent of it. We're still very much feeling this today. And it's a very serious problem, none of which we have been taught nor deal with this major social problem as a means to an end. And it's only created damage. And we're currently in BC, which is a totally different system than what we've just been talking about. We're in Canada. And this is all up in America, currently in what's being called an epidemic in which drug overdoses, at least in BC, are overwhelmingly more than COVID-19 deaths. And in Vancouver, actually, we're pretty liberal because we have safe sites, etc. But in no way is it a perfect system. We have something coming up and I can't remember what it is, but they are handing out clean drugs. Yeah. I can't remember what it's for. They're handing well, for out a long clean time drugs. Too, they were testing the drugs. And there are definitely countries that do this. Like Switzerland gives out free, clean heroin if you need it. Yeah. Portugal has decriminalized all drugs. And it's not the ideal system, but it's way better than what we have here. Yeah. So, I mean, as I say, like I have, and it's the thing, it's with the system, there's zero regard for the actual people or the societal problems and cultivation, which this was all created among a million other reasons. I've always said the way to fixing this is to legalize. Is that yeah. the word that you told yeah. me during our practice? Yes. Not legalize, legalize. Legalize so that you can then control what is being put in the drugs. And I mean, that's probably even a means to fix what has been done. That's how you regulate. That's how you control and you yeah. stop all and, of and this. Even and more you address the social problems and you address that's where you can start to begin addressing the addiction as a problem not yeah. making it illegal so that it's taboo and that's the two parts of it is that yes making it a criminal activity means that you're more likely to get harmful chemicals within but the other part of it is that the user is ostracized from their community for committing a crime so you no longer have your support group yeah so the two things about legalization is legalized so you can regulate 
both the drug and the assistance of somebody who is suffering from addiction. I think it's as simple as that. Yeah, I agree with that. And it's already a huge strain on our society, whether we're talking just strictly from a monetary point of view or an emotional point of view or just a personal point of view. Well, there's so many significant. And there's so many things because of how other races were treated that contribute to drug addiction. And with them being treated as criminals, they're not offered that help in which in a lot of cases, I mean, it could be a million cases, but in some cases, it's what our society has done to them in the first place. It's definitely a hard social program. But I think hopefully our society is going in the right direction. And I think this was a really good episode to kind of shed some light on it, because I definitely learned a thing or two new here. And we try to add in some lightheartedness to it and some funny banter as we do. We are so good at. But we do realize that this is a serious problem and one that needs light shed on it as well. Yeah. And to be just from my own point of view, I don't think it's our darkest episode. Oh, it's not. And like, this it, it's is, kind of sad that like this is how on many par. Is not it's, the saddest. No, it's on par for what we like to talk about. We like to bring awareness. We like to learn some things. We like to talk. <laughs> and when, when we do the real world, it's just sad. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's super dark and depressing. And but it's the world we live in. And what else are you gonna do? Like pretend that yeah. we live in a great world. <laughs> So anyways, thank you for tuning in for our drug saga. Stay tuned next week where we talk about how great the world is. Yeah, just kidding. Thank you for listening to Journey to the Fringe. Uh, We are a new podcast and we would very much so appreciate if you could like, subscribe, share and if possible provide a five-star review or some sort of feedback if you feel like there's anything we could be doing better but five-star review is the best thing you can do for us as it does help unfortunately in the world of algorithms yes please and thank you and you can follow us on social media at journey to the fringe we don't have all of them so try searching it instagram we're on facebook right now we have a subreddit And if there's anything you want to hear in the future, feedback, anything, you can email us at journeytothefringe at gmail.com. If there's something we're missing that you'd like to see us on, please let us know. We only know what we know. So we're only in so many places. Also, if you feel that we have gotten anything wrong, please let us know there as well, as we would really like to have the best information possible. We are Mm -hmm. only as good as our research. And if you can provide anything further, it's a real help. Or if you want to share anything, we will definitely, we're open to shares. So yes, thank you for listening and we'll see you in the next episode.